Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Claire Brown, Associate Professor and Director of the Advanced Bioimaging Facility at McGill University. And we discuss about balancing a research lab and running a core facility. I'm usually overcommitted, so I'm, I've been uh, trying really hard to say no. The importance of a people-centered approach. And so I think, and it's not just having the bodies, it's, it's also mentoring them and, and you know giving them an environment that they want to come to every day. How sometimes simpler is better. You really need confocal, you know, the wide field will give you much more signal. You can look through the whole cell. And the importance of big networks in science. If you go to them and say, global bioimaging recommends we do this, they listen to you in a very different way than if you say, you know, I think it'd be really good if we did this. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, University of York, and today on the Microscopist, I'm joined by Claire Brown from McGill, McGill, uh, Montreal, Canada. Claire, how are you today? Good, thank you. Great to be with you. Yeah, I I kind of know you're okay, because I've just been chatting with you beforehand. (laughs) But, but, do you know, something I don't know about you is, how did you get into microscopy? Oh, do you know, I'm going to go one better. When you were 10, what did you want to be around that age? yeah, I always love science. So I uh, I remember getting the popular science magazines from the store when I was little and reading about the new gadgets and things that were coming out and telling my uh, friends and siblings about these cool little little uh, inventions that were in there. And always loved the outdoors. You know, we spent summers at our um, cottage, which was uh, on the ocean and just nature was all around and learning about trees and rocks and fish and yeah, so I, I think I always wanted to be a scientist. I didn't have kind of a moment later in life that I, you know, changed my mind or anything. It was always what I wanted to do. That's it. So trees, rocks, fish. Mm-hmm. So we've got geology. We've got potentially environmental biology. <laughs> we've got uh, marine biology. And here you are as a cell biologist. Uh, so, okay, so so you love science. What was your, de- where did you, what was your first degree and where did you do it? So I did my undergraduate at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a small undergraduate-based school. And to be honest, I went there because I thought it would be easier to get into the med school at Dalhousie, which is the bigger um, research-based uh, professional school. And I had been told your chances of getting in were better if you came from the surrounding schools. So I started off in biology, thought I would go into medicine. And after a year of learning a textbook this thick about animals and learning a textbook this thick about plants, I decided I hated memorizing and that chemistry was way easier. And so I switched my major into chemistry. And uh, then I got to know about chemistry and organic chemistry was just memorizing different things, memorizing molecules instead of worms. So so I moved into um, physical chemistry, which was math and was something you could figure out. And if you didn't know the equation on the quiz, you could figure it out without the equation and, and uh, stayed in the physical sciences after that. But then at the end of my undergrad, I was doing a project in electrochemistry and I'm like, oh man, I don't know. 
<laughs> this isn't really what I want to be doing. <laughs> so when I was started looking for graduate um, labs, I moved towards cell biology. So that was how I, I uh, sort of found my way back to the life sciences, um, but with a chemistry um, hat. So, Do you think actually having that chemistry grounding and the so, so, so from the from that side, do you think that's actually helped? And having the physical side to it as well, do you think it actually helps mm-hmm. ground you more to help actually with the sound biology? Yeah, I would say it's it's great and it's not great. So it depends on the context. Um, I ended up in a chemistry department where um, you know most of the people on my thesis committee had no idea what I was doing. And uh, I had an interesting interaction with one of the inorganic chemists. He said there was no data in my thesis, so um, because it was images, right? <laughs> so I ended up taking a five twelve by five twelve image and printing it on a piece of paper with all the numbers for the intensities, and I put it in his mailbox just to say, "Here's some of my data," you know. So, so it was hard because you were you were um, at the interface, and I think through my whole career, I've been at the interface. Um, and some people just don't get what you're doing at all. Um, but on the flip side, I love the challenge of pulling the interesting bits out of chemistry and the interesting bits out of cell biology and then coming at the problem with a whole different perspective than people in either of those fields. So I, it's, it's a lot of work, but I think in the end, it's, it's worth it. And uh, one thing, though, I would say uh, it's much better now, I think. At that time, there weren't a lot of people cross-discipline. It was hard even looking for jobs. Like you weren't a chemist, but you weren't a cell biologist. You, you know? So, but I think it's better now. I, but I think some of those challenges are still there. So actually, it's interesting that you said that it depends on what your job is, what your role is. Actually, mm. for those who don't know you, what is mm. your current role? Because that, that's also yeah. not mainstream <laughs> at all. Sure. So as I mentioned, I've always loved being at the interface. And uh, so microscopy is is certainly at the interface. So I run the advanced bioimaging facility at McGill University. And I've been here almost 17 years. I can't believe it. I started here in 2005. And part of the reason was during my postdoc, I found like I was helping everybody with their with their experiments. So I kind of became the, the jack of all trades, kind of dabbling in all the different experiments. But then I realized I didn't really have my own project. And when this job came up, I thought, this is perfect. I don't have to have my own project. I can work on all kinds of interesting projects. And uh, that's what our facility does. We're all the way we have bioengineering, chemical engineering, people from obstetrics and gynecology, uh, uh, material science. There's some people working on microplastics and environmental science. And, and I just love the breadth and the the, just finding a little bit about all these different projects and then giving them the tools they need to to answer the questions they're interested in. Which, which I think is really good to hear because I think there's a lot of academics, uh, so core academics, that actually find it hard to understand that you don't want to sort, you don't want to go deep into mm. a specific subject matter. Uh, I, I would argue you talked about the breadth and you know looking at jack of all trades mm-hmm. might be turned yeah. But actually, it's not strictly true because the depth is in the technology and the application. That needs mm. a lot of depth to understand mm-hmm. the technology, to apply yeah. it to such a diverse range of, a bit like, I, I guess, if you're looking at one biological question, that's your depth. But you don't necessarily have the depth of all the technologies you're using to solve that question. So it's a depth and breadth in a different yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the big challenge, right? Picking the right technology for the researcher so that they get the best answer to their question, right? And one of the most interesting things I still find to this day is, is trying to pull people back to the more basic technologies. And uh, we just had that, this conversation this morning with a group looking at antibody staining. And I'm like, do you really need confocal? You know, the wide field will give you much more signal. You can look through the whole cell. You can... So I think also pointing people to the right technology and and if the most advanced fancy tool out there is the right tool, great. We'll we'll do our best to help people use that, but always remembering to pick the best tool. And often it could be a wide field microscope or even DIC imaging or or something like that. Which is also more cost effective for them. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, there's so many advantages, right? It's it can be faster, it can be less data, it can be less uh, instrument fees yeah all kinds of benefits so but the same or better scientific data absolutely yeah yeah i think we we struggle with this we have this big um, funding agency the canada foundation for innovation and they fund all of our research microscopes and any high-end uh, equipment and research and there's been this association of the newest technique with innovation and uh, i'm always harping on you know you can do very innovative science on a wide field microscope or on, you know, maybe a tabletop, uh, you know, small tissue culture scope. It doesn't have to be a, an advanced instrument. So I think we need to always remember that the science can be innovative. You just, or even how you apply the tool. Maybe you apply a, a really, a tool that's been around for a long time in a really novel way. I think, I think that's actually a, for someone who's not geeked into microscopy, quite good to hear because I would say 90, 95% of the research needs a more basic microscope compared to the high end. Mm. But it's the high end ones that give that, that, that can answer questions you can't do any other way. Uh, and really pushing the frontiers at that point. Mm. Uh, but of course, yeah. microscopes are costing how many Canadian dollars? Yeah, I would say between 100,000 and a million. <laughs> but they're not cheap. Depending. Oh, the, the high-end ones. Yeah, you're looking at a million dollars for sure. Even mm -hmm. the low-end are quite expensive. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so that's what you wanted to be. Oh, well, I guess you didn't want to. I guess this role didn't even exist when you were an undergraduate. Yeah, because these roles are, are relative yeah. last 20 yes. years. So. Yeah. If you could be anything today, what would you do? <laughs> Oh, that's a hard question. I think I would keep doing what I do now, but with more supports. <laughs> so I would remove all the parts of my job that I don't like, like the administration and the grant writing and the finances. And if I could just go to work and do science and help people do microscopy and, and work with people, I think I would, I would keep doing exactly what I'm doing. Do, do you actually dislike that admin and the grant writing and everything? Or actually secretly at the end of it, do you find it quite rewarding still? I would say I dislike it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The grant writing, I like the writing of the project. But that to me is only like 10% of the work. And then the other 90% is using the right font size and putting my CV in the right format and having the right margins and... Um, you know, it's all that other stuff that, that I don't enjoy. The project itself I do enjoy because it forces you to, you know, get back to the literature and read about things and 
and get up to date and get your ideas spinning and brainstorm with your co-authors co on the grant and so on. But And there's a lot of text in tick box text. Mm -hmm. Is that a word? Tick box text? If it isn't, it's a good phrase now, tick box text. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> uh, which actually can be quite arduous to write and sound different to what's in the main proposal. Mm -hmm. Copy-paste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I would keep, I love my work. I love my job. I think I would keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> so, I think you, you mentioned uh, when you were young and you, you mentioned your love of nature and science, you sent me some photos. I, I, some of them haven't scaled perfectly. So what are the photos of? I guess this is one of the nature. This pictures. is a view from uh, one of the um, mountains in Val David, which is just north of, of Montreal. And I actually went there with a technician who was in my lab at University of Virginia when I was a postdoc. And her and her daughter came up to visit me in Montreal. And we spent the day up there. So it was really nice because we had hiked the, I always think about that. We had hiked the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia lots of times when I lived down there. And this is like the other end of that mountain range. So it was kind of nice to to reconnect with her. It had been about 10 years since we'd seen each other and, and uh, also to be on that same mountain range. So this would have been in August, beautiful weather here. And it was a really nice day. It does look nice. Looks rather different mm -hmm. to this cold. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is a trail in uh, Nova Scotia. Um, I actually ended up spending quite a bit of time there during the pandemic working remotely because my family is is there. And this trail is uh, literally across the street from uh, from my brother's house where I was staying. And I walked it almost every day. And uh, it's beautiful. There's a little creek on the side there that you can't see. And, and uh, it's about 2K each way, so it was a nice... Nice afternoon walk to take a break from the computer and Zoom. So they have good internet at their family houses. Yeah, yeah. And it uh, was something I'd forgotten about growing up there is how close they are to nature. Like you drive five minutes in any direction and you're really in the middle of nowhere. So, so I've got to ask, we, nice. we helped run those establishing safe working practices in, for the core labs during COVID uh, as part of that. Where were you? Do you where, do, were you local or were you actually in the family place when we did those meetings i was in montreal when we did those first meetings yeah this was later i'd actually gone um gone home to visit for christmas in this would have been in 2020 in in the fall and they had a, a very strict covid rules in nova scotia so i had to isolate for two weeks at an airbnb with with my son who was 20 at the time in order to visit my family so we had to be 14 days in isolation and I decided to take the plunge and go for it and so we planned to go for a month and then when we were getting ready to come back to Montreal in January they had just initiated a curfew in Montreal that you weren't going to be allowed out past 8 p.m you were allowed to leave your house after 8 p.m <clears throat> and uh and the COVID cases were really high in Quebec and they were really low in Nova Scotia and I was like Hmm, maybe I won't go back right now. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't allowed to go on campus, so, well, I, <laughs> so guess I ended up working remotely from there. It was really fun. You just not allowed out the house? Yeah, Quebec was the only place in North America that instituted that. It was from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. You weren't allowed to leave your property. So there was jokes about people lending their dogs around because you could you could walk a dog. Oh, oh. Um, 
And uh, I had to write letters for my students so that they could stay in the lab past eight. So they, if they got pulled over by the police, they could, they could uh, show the letters. So it's, it's a bit eerie. There's some pictures of some of the expressways here in Montreal during that time that there's like no cars and it's like 9 p.m. on a Thursday night, you know. Well, I, I, yeah. I guess COVID obviously becomes a lot more contagious after eight o'clock and before six o'clock in the morning. Well, you know, it seemed to, I have to admit, I felt the same way as you, but it, it did seem to work. And I, I think there were a lot of people kind of popping over to the parents' place after dinner or going to hang out with a friend or, yeah. yeah. And, and drink, so. that time of day kicks mm-hmm. in as well. But, yeah. But, yeah. but anyway, we, we were able to bypass it and, uh, and I got to spend lots more time with my family, which was kind of ironic where most people were isolated from their families. So I was so how grateful. Big a, how big a part of your family? I think, <laughs> I, I presume this is one of your family photos. So this was my mom and dad's 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, we got the whole family together. There was uh, 50 of us, I think. So I have, I have. Uh, that the same? Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is much uh, later. So in the very back, my uh, the bride is not very visible, but my uh, my nephew got married, so he was the first grandchild to get married. And uh, I have thirty two nieces and nephews, and six six three six uh, grand nieces and nephews. So how many brothers or sisters? Nine. So I have four brothers and uh, five sisters. And I'm I'm number nine at the bottom of the pack. <laughs> so were you the spoiled one? No, I had a baby sister, so <laughs> nine is definitely middle child. <laughs> so out of nine, how many scientists amongst them? Oh, that's a good question. Um I would say half. Okay. So a sister who's a medical doctor sister who's a nurse a brother who's a chemist and another sister who's a biochemist so half i was going to say so you could actually say that they are all utterly dependent on you (laughs) to help develop the drugs that they administer or deliver (laughs) techniques they use to diagnose all comes from the science but then you said you've got a biochemist so that kind of yeah yeah no, pretty pretty diverse group but uh but yeah half in science which is kind of neat and my dad was family doctor so what about the other half then uh we have a contractor um my sister and brother both work in uh in home uh like um they quote and install windows and doors for construction yep. mostly residential and my brother's a contractor in commercial construction. Um, one brother works for 911. He's a shift operator. And my other sister actually has her PhD, but in theology. So, I, I, I feel as I was just giving you a test because you've just gone through what all, <laughs> they all do. It sounds like you know what they actually do, which is amazing. We're pretty close. Yeah, there's only 11 years between us. And uh, we do keep in pretty good touch my sisters and i zoom with my mom every week since the pandemic started and we, we all stay in pretty good touch so that's, that's, that's really cool so mm-hmm. back, back on to the science mm-hmm. your first microscope was your, your first proper microscope i don't mean a, a one you might have had at home but do you remember the first mm-hmm. proper microscope you used i would say probably an undergrad at university you know when we were dissecting uh 
frogs and and fetal hearts and looking at amoebas and things under the microscope. And that, so probably first year university. Mm -hmm. I, I remember those, but I couldn't tell you what brand they were or what model they were. No, it's um, it's unfortunate, and I'm not uh, calling you from my office, but I, I have a lights microscope in my office that was my grandfather's. Oh, wow. And he was the medical doctor for CN Rail, so the Canadian National Railroad. And he was the doctor who you go for your, your company um, checkup every year. And he had this microscope in his office and it's got a wooden box and it's a, a brass microscope and each lens has the the um writing of the person you know the signature of the the lens maker and uh he um uh my dad had it in his office as well and he would do some simple blood tests and things he would actually use it in his practice so it was funny when my dad was um retiring um, he said to my mom, I'm, I'm going to give this to Christine. And Christine's my sister, who's the medical doctor. And my mom looked at him and said, Bob, you have to give that to Claire. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty funny. But maybe I can send you a picture of it uh, afterwards if you want. It's it's actually on our course posters for the Montreal Light Microscopy course. And uh, that, that's it's, a really, it's a really beautiful thing to have. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think the modern day microscopes are not as pretty. Uh, for ornamental mm -hmm. purposes. I, I agree. Say, they, they are works of art, but they are not something you put on your mantelpiece. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really, uh, it's really something. And the fact that it was my grandfather's makes it really uh, sentimental, you know, it's nice to have. Mm -hmm. And the days when I guess doctors were doing their own di sort of diagnosing, doing their own sort of uh, mm -hmm. blood studies and so forth. Mm -hmm. Whereas yep. now they can be often yeah, lose all that side, I guess. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so moving through Bina Firinging North America mm -hmm. um, which you've got quite a big role in I'm uh, one of the three co-chairs yeah <laughs> so how did that stop what how did it start what's the purpose of it okay can I go back a little bit yeah of course <laughs> so um I've always been one to bring people together so I never like to reinvent the wheel and um, I know other people have done things. So why should I figure it out again? You know, and I was interested in starting something up in Canada. Um, so Canada bioimaging was something I was thinking about. And I was doing some research online and I found global bioimaging and I was looking at their website and they had this big arrow going from Europe to North America and above the arrow, it said USA. And I thought, oh, I can fix that. <laughs> so, um, so I contacted them and uh, I met with uh, Anche Kepler and Federica. And it was right away I talked with them and I'm like, I want to work with these people. You know, they're just fantastic um, in building networks and just fantastic people. So I knew right away I wanted to work with them. So I joined Global Bioimaging. And then in order for Canada to be a partner with Global Bioimaging, we had to have a national group. And so that I used all of my the information and everything I had learned from them um, to set up Canada Bioimaging. And we're officially a partner of, of Global Bioimaging now. So at the same time, um, or shortly after that, um, there was this meeting at Genelia Research um, Center to bring together the people from Europe who are part of global bioimaging and some of the other networks, you know, as you know, um, Bioimaging UK and 
France bioimaging and all of those with um, people in North America who were who were in mostly in the U.S. and some from Canada. And the idea was to, to learn from each other and see if there was interest in forming a North American group. So, um, so that was a great meeting. It was a couple of days and there was technology talks. There was talks about networks. I actually gave a presentation about Canada Bioimaging and, and uh, we have another group called the Canadian Network of Scientific Platforms, which is, is a similar group, but for all technology platforms. So it's not limited to microscopy uh, with the same idea of coming together and trying to solve common challenges that we have and have a voice to the government and the funders and so on. So um, when they were setting up uh, the executive for Bina, they asked if I would be part of the group as a representative from Canada. And uh, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, and, and a shout out for Mexico, because I think Mexico meeting as well, uh, and part of it, uh, through Chris yes. Wood, I think, was there. That's it? right. Yeah, it's the three countries. Mm -hmm. It was interesting how you said, and, and it's interesting, you don't want to duplicate, but you've got Canada bioimaging, you've got, or just, you've got the... <laughs> Bioimaging North America, you've got global bioimaging, it's like mm. duplication, duplication, mm. duplication. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned the importance of going back to politicians, which needs to be not on the global necessarily, but mm -hmm. back to your local government. And how how easy is it to get influence direct to the funders, uh, national funders? So we've been struggling a lot in Canada, but that was why we formed the Canadian Network of Scientific Platforms, because we found when we went as a group of microscopists, they were like, oh, that's nice, you know, you're, you know, off you go. But when we then came saying we're representing, you know, electron microscopists, light microscopists, nanofabrication facilities, um, tissue banks, you know, the whole gamut, then we're really representing the community across the whole country. And I'm sure as you and many of the listeners know, the problems are the same, right? We have trouble re retaining, recruiting and retaining staff. We have trouble um, renewing our equipment. We have, and it is the same across all those groups. And through that, I've actually also recently made connections with the Canadian government labs. So these are labs that are funded directly by the federal government. And they're echoing the same, the same challenges. So now I find when I go to you know, people in those positions, I'm there representing that big community rather than just microscopists or just my facility. And also being part of Bina, being part of global bioimaging, if you go to them and say, global bioimaging recommends we do this, they listen to you in a very different way than if you say, you know, I think it'd be really good if we did this. So I am seeing the, the importance of these big networks and the, the common voice and, and these international recommendations that are coming out of global bioimaging and, and all of that. So I think it is kind of a trickle down, but you do need the local groups too, because everyone has a different research environment and, and funding mechanisms and all of that. Yeah, and I obviously fully agree. Uh, mm -hmm. What was it, Royal Microscopic Society, Eurobiomaging, Bioimaging UK, mm -hmm. uh, so I totally agree. And having that influence back, UK has been really good very early on at encouraging voices from core facilities and technologies, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is really good uh, from a UK perspective. You mentioned the networks, though, so now you've got, oh my goodness, you've got your core <laughs> facility, which is, how many staff in your core facility? Uh, I have three and a half, I would say. <laughs> One part-time and a couple of part-timers and three full-time 
Okay, so, so I think you sent a photo of a lot of them. Yeah. So this was a, a Zoom party where one of our staff was um, going back to Europe and uh, his family's back there. So he decided to, to head back. So, uh, so we decided to get together on Zoom since we weren't able to get together in person. So this was in uh, early 2021. Um, but I should say I have another hat. Um, I also run my own research lab. So that's kind of separate from the facility. So this is a, a combination of my facility staff and my students and postdocs. So. so how do you balance the conflicts between those two sides? So you've got a core facility, which is which kind of serves users. It has a very different financial model. Then you've got your research. How do you prioritize? You've got, you've got a grant deadline. You've got a user need. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very difficult. I tend to uh, I tend to try to do it as I go, you know. So next week, what's my, you know, what's the priority? I do find um, I'm usually overcommitted. So I'm, I've been uh, trying really hard to say no. I, I keep saying there should be a workshop on how to say no, but Whenever I ask anybody, nobody really has a, a very good answers for that. <laughs> yeah, thanks for saying yes to doing the podcast with me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's that's what I find hard is I, I think it's because I really love what I do and I see the opportunities and the impact that I can have if I do all these things. So maybe I can give a couple of... So I, I had actually taken two days last April um, as a personal uh, couple of days of reflection. And I, I turned off my computer. I didn't look on media. I, you know, I just spent two days reflecting, went for walks and, and things like that. And I actually made a post-it note, a wall of post-it notes, with which was all color-coded of kind of what things were facility, what were national networks. And, uh, and it was really helpful. And uh, one of the themes that came out for me was to make it about the people. And if the, you know, if, if there's a chance for a project, say, say I want to write this grant and I know the person who's working with me would be perfect for that grant, then that would be a factor I might think about rather than recruiting somebody new. Yeah. You know? And, um, and I find when you, when you focus on the people and give them the autonomy and the skills they need, they can also take over. So I have really good people in my facility who can, who can, fill in for me if I have to disappear for three days to work on a grant. And so I think, and it's not just having the bodies, it's, it's also mentoring them and, and, you know, giving them an environment that they want to come to every day. And, and it's not just about the science, you know? So that was one theme that came up for me was just sort of focusing on the people. And then the second one was these networks, you know, Canada Bioimaging, Global Bioimaging, Vina, um, and just seeing how those networks could impact the whole community. And so I, and they're not like, it's not twice as much work if I work with Canada Bioimaging and Bina. The things I'm doing in Canada Bioimaging feed into Bina and the things I'm doing in Bina feed into Canada Bioimaging. So I think as long as there's a strong overlap, then it, it kind of, I don't know, it, it's almost like a phase separation, right? It comes to, it, it, it comes clear of, of where the overlaps are and where you should keep your focus, your energy and, I would say the same for my lab. Like in my lab, we study cell migration, but then the tracking algorithms we implement in the core, you know, or we get a new software in the core and my lab members are the ones testing it out. So my staff don't have to, Yeah. you know, so it's, it's that sort of uh, interplay, I guess, of the, of the different parts. So how many 
how many users do you have at the core facility? In 2021, I believe we're around 300 and we service about 120 labs. So, so it's just, it's good to get that size of perspective of what's going on over mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Supported yeah. by three and a half staff, did you say? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, you also, you obviously you charge, uh, we all charge, but you're also yeah. very successful in your charging and you do recover your running costs, don't you? Um, we recover, we have our running costs and then we do get some funding from the Canada Foundation for Innovation for um, service contracts and repairs. And then the balance actually comes from my research grants. So, so I do probably bring in about a third of our costs through grants. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, so it's, so it's not ideal. <laughs> it's very yeah. tough. So what do you, what do you do to chill out? <laughs> Did you have um, time to chill out? Yeah. Well, I was saying, I really like the outdoors during the, the pandemic. I've spent a lot of time walking. Even in my own neighborhood, I've made it a point of walking every day, even if it's snowing or minus 20 or raining or whatnot. So that's certainly a big part of it. Um, During the pandemic, one of the things I really got into was puzzles. Um, I think that's my mathematical mind (laughs) coming out. What sorts of puzzles? Oh, all different kinds. But I like colorful, scenic, you know, flowers, landscapes. It's actually coloring and coloring is another thing I do. Yeah, I find that really coloring. I took a few hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to color. I um, I actually um, I actually go on retreat um once or twice a year. Um, it's been less frequent with the pandemic, but um, there's a monastery near here uh, where you can go on silent retreat. And the first year I went, I was freaking out because I'm like, I cannot be silent for 48 hours. This is impossible. <laughs> I thought I'm going to try it. And, um, and I did. And, but the, the thing I found hard was my mind just couldn't get into the retreat, you know, Friday evening. And, and I found if I colored, then it kind of all the thoughts and cares and whatever went away. And I was just focused on the, on the marker and the paper. So, yeah. So what other hobbies? Do you, I, I believe you bake. Right. I love to cook. Yeah. Me, that oh was, goodness, uh... It looks like I've got this big hairdo. <laughs> <laughs> I, I presume it's dead at this point. Yeah, that's that's rolls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a whole, this is a diversity to. Yeah. I guess, that, was, that was a New, New Year's party. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to, now, this one's far better. Actually, I quite like bread as well, but. Mm-hmm. Chocolate, Choc- chocolate cake. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one thing I missed with the pandemic for sure. And I'm, I'm, you know, gradually getting back to that with being able to go back to the office um, is, you know, you bake, you don't bake a dozen cookies, you bake four dozen cookies, right? And then you take some to work and you drop some at the neighbors. And so I found during the pandemic where people were really isolating, I did make one dozen cookies for the first time ever. But now uh, that I'm back in the office uh, a couple days a week, I'm always taking stuff in for my staff. So. That's uh, good. What, what about your son? Is it just one son you have? And is, is is this a picture of your? Yes, that's my son Sam. That's a little while ago. He's he's twenty one now, and uh, yeah, that one's yeah, cutting off on, on my screen. On <laughs> that's, that's quite appropriate. He's he's very actually, cool, hasn't he? He's yeah, he's about six four, and uh, I'm not so tall. 
So this was actually at, um, at, uh, after the Elmi meeting, he came over to Ireland with me. Um, and we stayed in, in Ireland for a week after the Elmi meeting in 2018. And this is at the Guinness brewery in the, in the pub at the top of the, of the, um, brewery, I guess. So I always joke that, yes, I am standing. Oh, you, <laughs> you can see the Guinness now. Sorry, I was hiding the Guinness <laughs> in your picture of it. Yeah. I can yeah. see why you're both smiling now. Oh yeah. It was a really nice trip. Yeah. We went, we, he got the train pass and, um, when I was at the conference, he was off fishing and Dunlory and he, uh, he learned the whole coast. He talked to all the local fishermen and we knew the best spots to go on the weekend. And yeah, it was a really, really great trip. So was this Elmy mm -hmm. Dublin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a good Elmy, wasn't um, it? It was great. Yeah. You have to say that. I can't wait to get back to travel. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I presume you're not doing Elmy this year. I am not. No. I was thinking about it, but my uh, it's actually my dad's 85th birthday that week, so I oh, think wow. I'll pro probably be going home. <laughs> that's, that's good. So you, so you like traveling. What's the best place you've been to? Well, I was really fortunate just before the pandemic. I was in Singapore for the Global Bioimaging meeting, and I stayed on for a few days afterwards and, and spent a lot of time in Singapore. And I just love the, the culture and learning about new places in the world and museums were so interesting and the food and uh, the botanical gardens I could have just uh, taken a, um, a sleeping bag and hung out there for the whole week you know it was just so much to see and uh, my, my one regret over there was not being able to get up to the infinity pool at the top of the uh, mm -hmm. I, yeah I the one's cool with the, 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 the three yeah spikes. yeah yeah the uh, the sands yeah, that would be yeah yeah we got up there i actually um stayed after the global bioimaging meeting with uh, phil hockberger and his wife we stayed together and so we were up there the three of us on top of the the sands yeah but i don't think i could ever go in the pool i i also had to stay a little bit away from the the railing it was a little i don't know i'm not i don't mind heights but with the glass railing and kind of hanging out over the edge there wasn't quite my cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> No, it, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a great place. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, a big shout out actually to Graham Wright over there. Uh, Show mm -hmm. me around his house at A Star as well. Yeah, yeah that, was a great, uh, that was a great global bioimaging meeting as well. Yeah. So, traveling's fun. But, mm -hmm. well, would you say that's the most fun part of the job? Or what would you actually describe as most, or even what has been the most fun time you've had in your academic career? Mm. I would definitely say the traveling yeah. and it, and it's not just seeing the place, but it's the people too. Right. Like, like with global bioimaging, I met all kinds of people that I had met before on zoom and never met in person and, and, you know, being able to, to have a drink together or, or go um, for a walk in the blue mountains or different things like that. And I was really fortunate in grad school. Um, I collaborated with a group at Tel Aviv university and my supervisor was pretty cool. He sent me to Tel Aviv to learn tissue culture and transfections. So I, I got to spend a month over there um, in during grad school and got to meet grad students there. And then one of the grad students there came over to Canada and visited us. And uh, it was really neat that we went to Niagara Falls. And you imagine taking somebody from Israel to Niagara Falls and just the amount of water, you know, like she just was like, this is incredible you know the amount of water that goes over there in a second is probably more 
water than falls in Israel in a decade or something. <laughs> I've, I've never seen it. I've never been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, it's really, I went to grad school at uh, Western University in London, Ontario. So it's about a two hour drive. So whenever anybody came to visit, we always went to the falls. But taking yeah. someone from Israel was definitely a highlight. So it's kind of all that intertwined, right? The food, the culture, the people. Um, they had just, she had just gotten out of her military service because um, women do two years of military service before they go to university in Israel. And um, one of, I can't remember what she did. Her lab mate was in intelligence, which was kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, and then we're, you know, straight out of high school into university and hanging out in the pubs, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. it was just seeing just seeing the differences and things it was, it's really interesting mm-hmm. so from the fun times what about the most difficult time you've had in your career so far mm. I, I didn't mean to say so far like it's going to get more difficult yeah <laughs> <laughs> hopefully there won't be um i think it was um i had been running the facility for about five years and um there was no stable funding and I was by myself and my son was only 10 and uh, I'm a single mom. So it was just me and him. And there didn't seem to be a plan, you know, the, the grant was ending and, and uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty much putting out hundred percent at home, hundred percent at work. And there was no clear path forward. Um, but I ended up, um, I guess one advice I would give for people, I found my advocates, you know, the, the, um, PIs who had hired me and really confided in them with the situation and what was going on and what I was worried about. And because I had done good work, they wanted to keep me around. And, and that was actually when I started my own lab. Um, so part of the idea was to put me into a regular faculty position so that my salary would be stable. And then I could hire somebody to work in the facility with me through the facility fees. And uh, so what was a really difficult time ended up being a really key transition time um, when I was moved into a more stable, uh, situation, you know, and, and I guess if I didn't get to that point, maybe I never would have had to push. Right. Yeah. So. I, yeah. That, and I, 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 I can't actually comprehend how difficult actually it must've been to balance a hundred percent, you know, mm-hmm. you know, lone parents with a young child. Yeah. Got your whole career hanging by a thread. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you can't let off the throttle because it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And then when you had time to yourself, you feel guilty, right? Because you're not working, you're not taking care of your kid. Or... Yeah, so I, 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 I'm so lucky that I wouldn't know that. And I, I, I think that's quite inspirational to hear how, how you fa- found a balance. And yeah. are you happy with that balance? Right now? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I am. Um, I've reflected about that a lot. I'm a pretty introspective person. And I, I remember one time somebody calling me a workaholic and uh, really bothered me. And I thought, oh, why is that bothering me so much? You know, and then I, I really reflected on it and thought, like, I love what I do. So if I need to write a grant on Saturday, but I'm going to you know, be able to hire these three awesome young students to do this really cool project, then that's OK to spend my Saturday like that. And so I kind of came to terms with that. And, and now my son's older, so. He's uh, he's 21 now, so his demands on my time are quite different. You're you're still a parent, but they're not the day to day kind of demands of when they're young. And that was part of the reason I started my lab when he was 10. And I really didn't want to start a lab when I started the job at the the bioimaging facility because he was only five, and I I wasn't crazy enough to think I could start a lab then. 
So it actually worked out quite well that it was five years later um, that I, that I, you know, embarked on that part of the, of the job. And that really opened up a whole bunch of new avenues because I was able to get my own funding and get some autonomy and, and really invest my research dollars into the, the platform and technology development and all that as well. So it sounds like you're very lucky to have those advocates. Uh, that was so important. Yeah. And I find it a bit hard now because some of them are starting to retire and things are changing. And, you know, it's uh, they're a big part of why I'm where I am. So, but yeah, I would, I mean, it's so important to find people like that in your own environment. So I take it you're still using them as mentors then and for advising. Absolutely. Them. Yeah. Yeah. They've been around the, around the university for a long time and, and they're like-minded, I think is really important. They're also community builders. They've both been chair of our department. They, they um, bring people together. They try to solve problems, you know, work, work together and move forward. So it's important you get the, the people who are like-minded with you to help you forward for sure. So, so I was going to ask who's been some of your inspirations. And I guess, mm -hmm. is there anyone else that you'd like to give a shout out to who's been an inspiration that's helped motivate you and drive you in your career? Well, I would, I would say my, uh, my family is a big one. Um, growing up in a family of 10, uh, I didn't realize until I went to grad school how much I learned in that environment. You know, you get a roommate who's an only child or has one other sibling and, and they grew up in a very different environment. So I realized how much sort of social skills and, and uh, negotiation and <laughs> never getting your own way. And I always joke that my, my four brothers uh, are the reason I'm so patient because they teased me every day for 20 years or so. <laughs> and uh, so I think my family and, and my dad too, like he, uh, he was a doctor right up till he was 78 and just really, really good work ethic. And, and, uh, and really um, for him, it was about his patients. He still did host calls right up till in his seventies, he was still doing host calls to make it. So, you know, people didn't have to try to get into the clinic. And, um, and he was, with, with the family that's so big and having to uh, negotiate with them, I guess, and always <laughs> agreements, maybe that's also where some of your networking and wanting to always network and bring people together and get people mm -hmm. to come yeah. from. And, but you've mentioned a few societies, but it, you do a lot of uh, sort of non-profit mm. organisations, uh, networking activities. <laughs> Yeah, so, you sent me this other picture, which I can't read. Yeah. What it says at the top. It says but... momentum. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've always been one to bring people together, and I always use this example where um, when I go back to Nova Scotia on vacation, I'll get all my friends together for dinner, and they haven't seen each other, you know. And I'm like, you guys can get together when I'm not home, you know, <laughs> but they they don't, you know. So they end up getting together every time I'm home. So I've always been kind of that that person who who gets people organized and gets together and and i love it you know so um in um i guess just a couple of years ago i i um in 2016 i attended a retreat that was for catholic single moms and it was at a camp on a lake and the kids were welcome and and it was the first time i ever found an event that was actually specific for single moms in in the church anyway and i'm kind of one of those person people who knows everything that's going on you know and I did a, a postdoc in Virginia and uh, it was really, really hard there. The 
most of the moms were stay at home. Like the, the moms at my son's daycare were stay at home moms and their, their husbands worked and all the activities were Monday, Friday to nine to five. And, and then I found one activity on the weekend at the bookstore and it was uh, daddy and me, you know, come and read a book with your dad. <laughs> I don't even fit there, you know? So I was always kind of looking for support and community in in that single mom experience. So so after that retreat, uh, me and a, a several other women co-founded this group called Momentum, and we now have over 60 members, and we just hired right. our first uh, full-time employee, and uh, we're trying to now ex- expand the group, and uh, this was an apple-picking trip that we did in October, and it was so amazing that most of these moms have been so isolated. Like, you think the pandemic has been bad. You know, some of them are in two-bedroom apartments with a balcony, and and the parks were closed in that first round of, of shutdowns, you know, and for months and months. And many of them are not Canadian as well, so their family are overseas and, and in different places. So just having this apple-picking trip, they were all so grateful. And for me, it was just sending out an email, let's go apple picking and, and showing up on Saturday morning to pick apples, you know, it's to, so I think it's the sort of the, the magnitude of impact you can have with such a small effort. So, uh, yeah, so we're looking, I'm hoping we're going to go global with that one. We'll see how it goes, but uh, it's picking up right now. I just love the irony that you went apple picking. So you even got into core facilities with that as well. We've got to the core of it, microscopy core facility. Yeah. On that note, with all that, uh, some quick fire questions with all those apples. Are you are you a cider or a beer person? Oh, both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go from the top of these. Would you say you were a fairly chilled or quite an intense person? Chilled. Yeah, I I, I would agree. Uh, <laughs> well, you've worked with me in the past, so you have to be chilled. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably found your limits. Are you a messy or a neat person? Oh, I would say in the middle as well. Like it depends if it's necessary. <laughs> I like I can have a little clutter in the corner, but I can't have the whole house. So, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I can go with that. PC or Mac? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm going to say both again because I have I love my iPad and my iPhone, but I would never buy an Apple laptop. <laughs> I'm going to go with PC then. McDonald's or Burger King? McDonald's. Oh, what's your go-to when you go there? What's your favourite? Mac combo. I don't even know what a Mac combo is. Damn it. Big Mac. Oh, okay. Or Big Mac it. combo. With chicken mm-hmm. sandwich. Got to be. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Early bird or night owls? Night owl. Oh, okay. So tea or coffee? Coffee. Espresso or Americano? Mm, mostly Americano, but I love espresso too. <laughs> Chocolate or cheese? Oh, I'm, I got to stick with both. I'm just a both person. I have to pick one? Oh, if I had to pick yeah, one? Yeah. Oh, man, that's really hard. Cheese. What do you find hard to live without? You find it hard to live without cheese and but chocolate? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pick cheese. Okay. Uh, yeah. We asked about seed cider or beer. So, what about beer or wine? See, I just like everything. Um, I don't have like a gut reaction there. You know, it depends. With my steak, it's a glass of wine. Friday night after work, it's a beer. <laughs> okay, so, is that a red or red or white glass of wine? Either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> okay, I, I'm going to make this. White in. on a hot summer day, red with my steak. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite food? Mm, that's a hard one too. I like everything. This is my problem. Well, well that's um, going to be my next question, which, which if okay, you're okay. at a conference and someone's put in front of you, what is your one bit of food that actually you think, oh, I really don't like that? I was where, sir? If, if, if you were to go out and someone was to buy you dinner, it was a set meal, yeah. and suddenly comes out in front yeah. of you, I just, I just can't eat that. That's, I don't like that. Oh, is that oysters. Like, oysters. Oh, <laughs> do you taste like something at least? I like do oysters. <laughs> remember not to shell out on those when you come over yeah Sorry. Bad joke. <laughs> uh, well favorite drinks i think all of them book or tv my uh, lazy side says tv but my i i would actually prefer a book <laughs> and what's your tv vice what, go on, admit to the one thing you wouldn't want people to know you watch. Oh, on TV? Um, I love the, like, um, espionage, uh, like, Homeland, the, the terrorist. Um, 24 was one of my favourites back a while ago. Yeah, they're, they're not sinful. <laughs> they're, they're binge-worthy, aren't they? Uh, All right, I like, I like Hallmark movies. You like horror Hallmark, movies? Hallmark Christmas movies. Oh, that's cheesy favorite? okay what's your favorite christmas movie <laughs> uh these are too rapid i don't know favorite christmas movie rudolph <laughs> did you see you get good answers though it's quick <laughs> favorite style of music mm, classic rock oh, okay cool mm. and a question I've been introducing lately. What is your favorite item of clothing? Oh, any big sweater. Like, you know, we're in the winter here, minus 20s, a big sweater with a nice collar. And, yep. Woolen? Proper woolen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as long as it's not scratchy. Yeah, it's <laughs> soft wool. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's definitely soft wool. <laughs> that okay, so back to work again. So you actually sent a photo. I've got to find this photo. Uh, ah, just to show that you can use a microscope. There you are. Yeah. Uh, I'm just looking. Is that a 510? No, it's a 710. 710. Oh, yeah, because yeah, they were square, weren't they? The 510s were square. Mm -hmm. so, what's your favourite microscopy technique? Mm. for my research it's turf i mean i just love i study focal adhesions and cell migration so when you get the turf tune just right and you get that really high contrast image of the mm. adhesion with no background yeah it's very satisfying i have some teaching slides where i go back and forth from wide field to turf and just when it when you get that high signal to noise it's just so satisfying you like to reflect back on those times then Oh, sorry, it's not even, <laughs> so sorry, another really bad microscopy joke. <laughs> I, I, I will stop with those jokes now. And, That's okay. <laughs> uh, where do you see the future? Where, where's the biggest challenge you have at the moment and where do you see microscopy moving in the future? I think uh, data management is definitely the biggest challenge. We have funding right now to get a lattice light sheet 
And just in a three-day demo, we generated, I think, six terabytes. And then we don't even have a computer that can open the data, so we need to get a new workstation. Um, and uh, yeah, so data management for sure and, and data analysis. And then I think the other is just um, the people again, you know, like getting the, the people with the expertise for these type of techniques and giving them a good work environment and and um, keeping them, you know, retention, recruitment and retention. We've had some uh, computer science projects and it's really hard to get computer scientists who are interested in image analysis and stuff because they have so many job opportunities. And, like I say, yeah. I, I, I try and keep these very generic, but I've got to ask my geek question. Is that a lattice light sheet seven you're looking at? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They look nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. they, yeah. They, they, I, I haven't got one. Leads have. I just don't know what to do with the data once we get one. <laughs> Which actually, it's not just the data storage. It's analysis. I think so much to do. So much more with the analysis side as well. There's yeah. so much missing. Yeah, absolutely. In those data sets, I, I guess that's where Jason Swedlow and a lot of his initiatives as well are moving towards. To yeah, yeah, we're um we're setting up a Miro at at our facility right now. So the idea will be to get the lattice light sheet data right into that from the start. So right. that should help. <laughs> but, but how do you find that with the expertise side? Because it's not the data in that image acquisition is one thing. Your cell biology and cell migration is another thing. But actually the comp, the high end analysis is a completely different skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been fortunate recently. Um, I've found, um, McGill's got a large undergraduate um, cohort. And so what I've been able to do, it's actually interesting. It took me a really long time, but once I found one person, then the word travels. And so I actually have a student who's doing her, her honors with me, her honors in physiology, and she's going to hopefully do her master's in AI machine learning um, of focal adhesions in the cytoskeleton. And then she had a friend who was interested in, in data analytics and cluster analysis of complex data sets. And then she had a friend who's a coder who's working with us to do an Apari plugin. So just in, in two years, I found three computer scientists uh, through word of mouth. So I think just uh, finding that first person, but we have had to stick with undergraduates. It's very difficult to find master's and PhD, unless you are like, I'm not a computer scientist. So, so I think you either have to collaborate with a computer scientist and they bring in the personnel or, or you work with undergraduates who are looking for internships and opportunities. You know, I think, I think, I think what you're doing is actually really cool. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think actually people mm -hmm. who are in our positions or even academic positions using those undergraduates can be really useful. And it's yes. not using them. That sounds wrong. He's actually mm -hmm. offering them a way yes. to develop their skills yeah. In a very proven manner that actually really helps yeah. their CVs as well. They have yeah. to be part of their course. So yeah. that's providing them with interesting, challenging projects yeah. and not just something that's cooked up just to tick tick box again. Yeah, yeah no, they love it. Yeah, they get so excited and you can just see it in their faces that they see that. So one of our projects was a Napari accelerator program project. And it was funded by Chad Zuckerberg Initiative. So now the student has also tapped into all the Chad Zuckerberg Initiative offerings for Napari. And she's just, you know, finishing her undergraduate in computer science. And I don't think she'd ever, she probably hadn't heard of Chad Zuckerberg, right? 
So it's, yeah, you just see, and that's what I love, right? It's the same with the networks. You're connecting people and, and the amount of work you need to do is very little, but by making that connection, it has a huge impact on the person you're, you're connecting, you know? And so, I, I'm going to do a quick plug, actually a shameless plug, but Stephanie sure. actually gave a talk on the podcast. So go, if you don't know what yeah. Times Uppenberg Initiative is about, go back and listen to Stephanie's talk. But they are, actually, they're a really welcome new stream of funding into science that's mm -hmm. funding it in a different way it's addressing yeah. science in a different way that has often been not neglected but in ways that i think really helps core and key areas especially around technology mm -hmm. yeah uh, it's a technology that's often needed to to solve the scientific questions that we're still yeah. struggling with. So a big shout out and of course bina yeah helped significantly by yeah. ezi as well yeah, so I think they're they're trying to build the network, which I think is what, you know, ties everything together, what we've been talking about, right? If you connect, I think that was one thing I realized in that sort of couple days of reflection, I would mention that I realized at this point in my career that my network is equally, or I may even say more valuable than my knowledge at this point. So I may not know something, but right away, I know who I can contact who either knows or can tell me somebody who will know. Is that I, I don't think, pardon? Is that not Google? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I never realized that as a young, like I would recommend, I always tell my students this in my classes, like don't underestimate your classmates. Don't underestimate the TA. Like you never know. You send them to conferences, not just to listen to the talks and give a poster, but to meet people. And you just never know how those connections will come back around in your career, you know? And uh, it's uh, it's very it's very interesting to think you know your your network being so valuable and I I, I didn't realize it until more recently I think and, and so actually for our PhD student actually he's a computer he's a actually a mathematician uh, but being looked after by really comp science maths mm -hmm. with the data analysis side and yeah with the co-supervisor one being a neurobiologist with the question. Yep. ourselves with the technology and how to address the data analysis questions and then obviously a uh, professor every maths who's got mm -hmm. the science and the, the complex analysis but certainly encouraging the students to create their own networks and develop networks mm -hmm. and many of our courses that we run we try to get them to keep in touch with each other after the courses yeah uh, to form yep. their own network because net they're so powerful mm -hmm. and they'll be all mm -hmm. different universities actually their next job offering opening could be there as well so not just helping yep. solve problems it can also be their next job opportunity absolutely right, so mm -hmm. we are i've just looked at the time and i we're out of time but i have to show this one photo <laughs> so, which one are you i'm the third one from the top in the front with my so, arms over the railing <laughs> third one from the I have my arms over the railing, uh, down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, that's me. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just yeah, thought that. That's our broom. My parents still live in that house. <laughs> wow. And how many years have they been in that house then? About 60. Mm -hmm. And, and <laughs> just, just by me, you also, you're also into photography. If I... Yeah. Which yeah. like, is like the sunset of the podcast today. Yeah. Uh, a beautiful <laughs> sunset. And uh, yeah, 
really quite oh I'm like a weather forecaster now <laughs> <laughs> i think there's uh high winds in the upper stratosphere there i'm just guessing i have, might have it wrong <laughs> i thought it sounded right <laughs> we are up over the hour so i'm going to say thank you very much for joining me today and thank you everyone Thanks who's listening uh, or watched uh, and please do subscribe to whichever channel you're watching or listening on Go and you can go and listen to Stephanie. You can go and listen to more about bioimaging North America uh, through Michelle Tano. I think talks a bit about it. We've got uh, Alison North talks in about it. But Claire, actually, you've been quite an inspiration throughout this. Uh, I think there's some really inspirational stories that hopefully many people who are listening will actually learn from and help them develop their careers as well. So Claire, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.